And we'll begin with the chanting of the refuges and the precepts. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sam asam buddhasa buddham saranam gachami mam saranam gachami sangam saranam gachami dutiyam pi buddham saranam gachami dutiyam pi dhammam saranam gachami dutiyam pi sangam saranam gachami tatiyam pi buddham saranam gachami Tatiyam pi dhammam saranam gachami Tatiyam pi sangam saranam gachami Panati pata veramni sikapadam samadhyami Adina dana veramni sikapadam samadhyami Abrahmacharya Veramni Sikapadam Samadhyami Musavada Veramni Sikapadam Samadhyami Sura Mereya Majapamadatana Veramni Sikapadam Samadhyami Vikala Bojana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda <coughs> Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vipusanatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Ucha Sayana Maha Sayana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Idam Me Silam Magafalanyana Sa Pachayo O Tu This evening's talk is about practice here and there, practice everywhere. So here we are, all of us, coming close to the end of 
in a longish, intensive period of practice. And soon to be uh, taking yourself, uh, taking your practice out there, wherever out there is for you. Which most of us uh, will, for most of you, which will entail for most of you, uh, a much longer period of intensive practice than we're coming to the end of here. With the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think for many of us, um, coming to the end of a retreat, uh, that time, we come to the end uh, with some of the same thoughts and some of the same feelings, uh, feelings and thoughts that aren't really so very dissimilar to those that we came into retreat with. For many people, though there's a feeling of excitement and readiness to go into an extended uh, period of practice, intensive practice, just before it's time to enter in, um, there may be for some of us um, the feeling that, well, I'm just not quite finished out here. Just maybe a few more days or maybe another week so that I can do everything that needs to be done and, and then I'll be ready to go go in and go into retreat. And it seems that many of us have some similar feelings, some similar thoughts when it's time to come out of retreat. An excitement and a readiness to go into the larger world. And yet maybe there are such uh, thoughts as, well, just a little bit more time. Maybe just a couple of more days or for some, maybe, oh, just a couple of more weeks, or for some it might even be, well, just another month or so. Um, and then I'll be finished. I'll have done what needs to be done. And, and then I'll be ready to come out of retreat and go on out there. Be ready to go back to wherever there is. And sometimes, at either end, the coming into retreat and the going out of retreat, there might be some degree of resistance, some degree of reluctance, maybe some fear of the unknown or fear of the seeming known or maybe essentially just fear of change, fear of ending one way and entering into another way. So you might check in with yourself and see if there might be some of these kinds of thoughts, these kinds of feelings occurring in your own heart, in your own mind. Similar conditioned patterns uh, coming up now at the end of this time of practice that you may have experienced somewhat similarly as you were preparing to come here, or that maybe you experienced uh, or felt at the onset of this retreat. And, of course, we might not feel any anxiety at all in either direction, entering into or coming out of. 
there's certainly the possibility that one might feel a clean, clear, open readiness and happiness without any particular expectations, without any particular worries about moving on to the next thing. Just simply moving on to the next phase and the next form that life will take. At a retreat that I taught uh, quite a number of years ago now, one person described coming out of retreat as feeling like she was descending, she said. She said she felt like she was descending, kind of landing. She said she was feeling the force of gravity, as she explained it, coming back to earth. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swicart regarding his experience traveling in outer space, and I'd like to share it with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes, because now you're no longer inside something with the window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames. There are no limits. There are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum. There's not, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, that, it, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for humans. And you look down and see the surface of that globe that you lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there, and they are like you. They are you, and somehow you represent them. You're up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet, and you and all those other forms of life on that planet, because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference, and it's so precious. And of course, it is a change. And so 
reflecting on the supports available to you as we begin to make this change out of retreat life into life in the larger world. One change being the pace of life. At least outwardly, life appears to uh, and feels uh, like it's moving a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice of how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body and mind. And how quickly and incessantly things change all around us, even in this slow pace of life in retreat. This understanding, this wisdom is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice to practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in its day-to-dayness or moment-to-momentness in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And we've had some taste of the impersonality of change. We've tasted that we can't stop change. And that though we try, we can't hold on to anything, anything at all. And maybe we've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration and mindfulness developed over these weeks, we've had some glimpse that whatever it is that we experience in the body or in the heart, in the mind, that any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions and in truth an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it, whatever it is, changes quite quickly or just simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, has a deep and a beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and more clarity in relationship to what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices we make, more connection, more clarity in our relationship to others, more clarity in what's important and what's appropriate what's wholesome and what's really, truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared way down, a life of much more simplicity, than most of us have in the outside of retreat. So this is certainly a change from here to there. Life in retreat actually offers very little distraction. 
we sit, we walk, we eat, we do our yogi jobs, we sleep, we talk a little, listen. You've spoken just a little bit every few days. And within this container of simplicity, you've been supported to mindfully pay attention to what occurs in the body, the heart, and the mind. You've been invited to see, been invited to know, how is it? How is it in the mind? Is the mind, the heart, opening to? Is it connecting with? And is it receiving what is? Or is it spaced out? Is it disconnected? Is there a separation? With all of this practice and learning, bringing us closer and closer to seeing and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, and a sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize, to respect, and to care about all of these cycles within our mind, our heart, and our body. This seeing and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. We're all so similar. No matter who we are, no matter where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our race, we're really just Variations on themes, actually. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, living respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language. It affects our actions. Seeing into our own heart-mind affects and informs the motivation behind the words, the motivation behind the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging the refuges and the precepts as part of our daily practice in our daily life, maybe beginning your day chanting them to yourself. It's a very powerful, can be a very powerful aspect of our daily practice, encouraging the purification of our 
thoughts and our words and our actions. There's a particular rendition, so to say, of the precepts, uh, the refuges and the precepts, that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza when she was living at Green College Zen Farm. And I'd like to share this with you because I think it's a particularly relevant way of um, looking at the precepts uh, relevant to daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, as I'm sure for many of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of the retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life more and more in ways that serve, that supports the process of purification of the heart, which is so intimately related to the process of liberation. And sometimes this happens through conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. And as practice deepens, there's more and more often a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and more naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've all committed ourselves to. And it's actually very often around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So a very simple and very mundane example. There was a time when I I would get into my car when I would get into my car, I would automatically turn on the radio. In those days, we didn't have CDs. So it was a little while ago. (laughs) 
at some point I began to notice this automatic radio going on, turning it on, as a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all of the time. So I'd get in the car and I'd begin driving somewhere after I'd made this decision. And my hand would automatically begin to kind of move towards the radio knob. The force of habit is very, very strong, as we know. And so then I'd very mindfully bring my hand back down again. And at some point, I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. And that was when the choice was available, to or not to. And very, very less often after that did I have to listen to the radio all the time when I was in my car. So looking at another change in this very simple and quiet space of retreat, there certainly may have been some big days for you some big events for you. And an especially big day, an especially big event uh, for you in retreat might have been something as mundane as laundry day. For me, uh, uh, there were times earlier, um, in early, the early years of my long intensive practice periods, when laundry day was such a huge addition to my day that at times I would um, find myself planning for it or at least thinking about it uh, before I went to sleep the night before laundry day was to occur and then sometimes it would be the very first thing that would enter into my mind that morning, the morning of laundry day. And I suspect many of you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And then how about the big event of the midday meal? What will we have for lunch today? And as you're going through the meal or getting ready for your meal, think, what will we have for lunch tomorrow? I haven't even eaten today's lunch yet. Or the event, uh, I call it the rehearsal, the rehearsal event, or the, the rehearsal that precedes the event, precedes the event of having a one-on-one practice interview. Big days big moments in our retreat. There's a poem uh, by uh, Nanao Sakaki that he calls Big Day. Nanao was a wandering Japanese Buddhist poet who died about six or so years ago. And this poem, Big Day, is one of my favorites of his. He says, getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with the neighbor, the sun goes down. A big day. Many years ago, Nanao used to spend time up at the Lama Foundation, which is about 40 minutes from here. In fact, our cook, uh, Surya, lives very near the Lama Foundation, up, up in that area. Nanao would show up uh, at Lama with his small knapsack and a sleeping bag and he'd stay up at the Lama Foundation for a few days 
and they were always very, very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains with just this, nothing more than what he'd arrived with. And he'd often be gone for a couple of weeks. And then he'd be back again at Lama. A very dear friend of mine who <clears throat> was the coordinator up at Lama during those years told me a story of one of these times when Nanao came in for a day or two from the mountains from his time of being out. And he asked her and her uh, and another friend if they would like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days after he went back out. And my friend was said she was just completely delighted with this, uh, something very special, uh, something that had never ever been uh, offered before um, from Nanao. So on the appointed day and time, um, my friend and the other invitee found their way to Nanao's camping spot by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there was no food ready or no food in view for dinner. He told them actually not to bring anything at all, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was uh, really plenty of food. And my friend said that when they got there and they looked around, they thought maybe they'd made a mistake, maybe it was the wrong day. But Nanao was very delighted to see them and very heartily and warmly welcomed them and said, well, now let's go out and look for dinner. So my friend said that they walked and picked and dug all kinds of wild foods. And then they came back to camp and they built a fire and they cooked what needed to be cooked. And she said they had an incredibly delicious dinner. And she said then they finally understood how Nana could go out into the mountains for days and sometimes for weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong and healthy and very happy. When someone in an interview spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat as having a good taste, they said. And we taste it. We taste this good taste. And we take it with us. It wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes in big ways. As we know, life outside of, uh, outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home and our family life, our work life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And often we do this little by little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do. In the way that we spend time with partners and family and friends. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really truly do have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree. We have the possibility of simplifying every aspect of our life. We truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat, of retreat life. And of course there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we certainly must continue with.
The taste of simplicity in retreat has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and it inspires the way that we expend our energy. What we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity, in the midst of relationships and various responsibilities. From our experience in retreat, we learn, we see, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in ways that when that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing with us into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourselves and within our life as a whole. And we find, in fact, that we have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and more clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we connect to a larger world. Simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey that we're committed to. So considering our whole life as our practice, how can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? I've already spoken about some of these ways and possibilities. And this is a really most important and essential question. And of course the essential ground The essential ground of this is that we develop, that we integrate a clear attention and a mindful awareness based in kindness into all dimensions of our being, making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, our creative endeavors, all part of our practice. And we can find many, many moments throughout our day when we can very simply bring our attention, for instance, to the sensations of a breath or the body moving in almost any circumstance, in almost any activity for a few moments or even just a few seconds. From this perspective, then, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really, 
really all of the conditions and all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. All of the joys and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the likes and the dislikes, all that we experience in life in retreat, because you've experienced all of this over these weeks, and in life outside of retreat, the mirrors for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel a number of years ago now, and who had, long before I met her, lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. She told me a story that's really quite a wonderful mirror of a particular and a difficult situation being the perfect practice. She said that in this community in France where she was living, there was an old man. And he was a very difficult, very irascible fellow, she said. He was quite messy and argumentative. He wouldn't cooperate, he wouldn't help with things, and basically didn't get along with others that li- the other people that lived in the community. And she said that no one liked him very much, and that he himself didn't seem to like any of the, uh, many of the people, or very many of the people in the community either. She told me that for a long time he tried to stay in the community, but it was very difficult for him, as it was difficult for the others as well. And so difficult that he finally left and he went to Paris because he couldn't bear it anymore. Well, Gurdjieff followed him to Paris and tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, no, he couldn't do it. It was just, just too hard for him, too hard to be there. Well, Gurdjieff finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back, which the man couldn't refuse because he was a very poor person. And so he did return. And when he arrived, she said everyone in the community was aghast. And she said they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there. Because they themselves actually had to pay to live in the community. So Gurdjieff called a meeting. And she said he listened very attentively to everyone's complaints. And then he laughed. And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. The conditions in our lives the people in our lives, all of them, are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of our heart and mind, yeast for our awakening, yeast for our liberation. There's one particular teaching among the 84,000 that the Buddha offered where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons um, for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings. 
metta, karuna, mudita, and upaka, unconditional kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And each of the sons, uh, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings. Well, I only have three sons, but um, they've managed to be some of my very strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can often be our very best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need from us, and what they give to us, and what they show us. So an example, my two oldest sons, who uh, will be 48 years old in June, are identical twins. They continue to show me, to teach me, a relationship that is very rare. They're each other's best friends. And although, uh, of course, when they were little guys, they, they would fight with each other, as children do, But over all of these years, they've never talked about each other or to each other in negative, judgmental ways. They never, really never, have put each other down. No matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done or not done, no matter how the other's life is going, and they're not each other's keeper. They've never been disrespectful or codependent with each other. I find it amazing, really amazing. And I've talked to them about it and told them how amazing I find it and thanked them for it. It's really quite a rare friendship. And sometimes I'm in awe of it and I always learn from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest, all that you have gathered. And a poem um, that speaks about this in a rather unique way. It's uh, from the Turkish and it's a by a, I'm not sure if I pronounce it right, Edip Kansever, something like that. And it's a translated by Richard Tillinghast. It's called The Table, or Table. A man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there, 
On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life, he put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine, the man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. So many days he had... Oh, I already said that. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. So letting go in retreat and as we move into a larger world. The key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves along the sacred noble path is first and foremost a clear attention that's grounded in mindfulness and kindness. And it's true that there's some degree of change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed over these weeks. A change in how it is in retreat, in a retreat such as this, as we connect with a larger world. And it's true there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness and investigation from how it is in a retreat such as this as we connect with the larger world. And although the same degree and depth of clarity, mindfulness, and investigation is not, isn't usually sustained outside of the retreat setting, that same depth, the capacities that you've developed of clarity, concentration, mindfulness, and investigation along with the multi, multi-dimensional facets of understanding, of wisdom that have blossomed for each of you in a retreat like this, are a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. There's a change, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness, clarity, Concentration, investigation, and the continual blossoming of wisdom are always, always available to us. Many years ago at the end of a two-month retreat that I sat with Saida Upandita and two other Burmese monks, I had a brief conversation with one of the monks at the end of the re- very end of the retreat. And I asked him if there was any advice uh, that he might give me around taking practice into the whole of my life and outside of the retreat setting. And his response was this. He said, you need to, st- you need to eat to stay alive 
and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. That's all he said. I thought it was pretty good advice. And there are some particular ways that I and others have found to be very helpful in bringing a simple and yet direct and immediate mindful attention more into our lives. And I'm sure uh, many of you have your own ways that you've discovered. One suggestion is that at the end of each hour, each hour of the day, take just one or two minutes to simply stop and be still and simply connect with breath, maybe at the Anapana spot or in the abdominal area or the breath moving through the whole body. Just one or two minutes. At the end of every hour, each hour of the day. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 to 30 minutes a day of a very directly focused mindful time with each of these moments then in fact having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry our practice in very simple in a very simple way into our daily life besides of course sitting on a uh, regular basis um, is to remember at moments during the day to touch into the physical sensations through contact. So maybe the feet on the ground, the bottom, your bottom touching the chair, hands touching each other. There's many other possibilities. Just a quick, immediate connection with the contact sensations in the body. Clear attention and mindfulness are immediately connected with and strengthened every single time we do this. I think the only hard thing about doing these brief meditation sessions, we could call them, is to remember to do them. Doing them is easy. Remembering might be hard. I do know some people who um, put little notes to themselves uh, around their home or in their workplace to remind them to check in with some of the ways that I've described or some of their own ways. So, for instance, a note on the bathroom mirror that just says breath or a little stand-up note on your desk at home or in your office that says still breathing or metta now or here now. Years ago when I was the resident teacher at uh, the Insight Meditation Society, there was a fellow who worked in the front office uh, at the desk there and he had a small stand-up note on his desk that said buttocks (laughs) to remind him to bring his attention to the touch points of his bottom on the chair every now and then. And it also made people laugh when they came in. He had to change it after a while because he stopped noticing it. So that's something you need to be aware of as well. And of course, walking meditation can be a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. 
an important aspect of continuing to connect with and strengthen a clear, mindful attention. I think most of us, or many of us, walk at least a few miles just going from place to place throughout a day, certainly throughout a week. And we can make some of this walking a time for practice, specifically a time for practice. When I lived at IMS as the resident teacher for staff, my workroom and my living space were the same room and they were up on the second floor of the main building. And because I did many practice interviews with staff and I had lots of meetings, I I didn't have time during the day, hardly ever have time during the day, to do walking meditation. So I decided that every time I would go up and down the stairs, which was a number of times a day, that would be my walking practice time. And once I decided to do this, I did it on most days. And at one point, a staff member came in for a practice interview, and he was obviously uh, quite agitated. And with a great amount of difficulty, he told me that he was very upset because he said I was ignoring him. And he said that he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. And he was wondering if I was angry with him. And I told him that going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time. And that I certainly had not abandoned him, and nor was I the least bit angry at him. It was just that I was trying to practice as deeply as I could every time I went up and down the stairs. Well, of course, this completely changed his attitude. And he told me he was very happy for me. (laughs) And he told me he thought it was a great idea. People may not always understand what you're doing when you integrate practice into your life in small ways. But do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And of course it's really helpful to connect with others who practice. And we certainly can see this and uh, feel it, uh, the benefit of this, as some of you have mentioned, uh, in a retreat setting. If any of you aren't connected, at least sometimes, with a group, even if it's just a group of one or two, to sit with, at least once in a while, check in and see uh, if there's a sitting group in your area, and if there isn't one, start one. Which might simply mean just asking one or two other people who you know who meditate or who might be interested in meditating to join you once a week or every other week to sit together. And as some of you do in groups you sit with, sitting together first and then maybe uh, if there's not a a teacher or um, a live person there guiding the evening, uh, reading something out loud, reading the teachings, some teachings, and uh, uh, something about practice, or maybe listening to a Dhamma talk, a CD, and taking turns each week is a nice way to do it, so that people take turns choosing the particular reading or the particular CD to be listening to and then have some discussion afterwards about what you've listened to 
and also have maybe have some discussion about your practice. It can also be helpful with groups that get together, as some of you know, to pick a theme, maybe a theme for a week, or maybe a theme that will carry on for a couple of weeks. I would say you focus the attention, your daily practice on those themes, and then get together and talk about it. The Buddha, in a conversation with one of his closest disciples, Ananda, spoke about the tremendous importance of connection with spiritual friends. And the Venerable Ananda, speaking with the Buddha, said, Half of this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends, companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda and said, Don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment as much as possible be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the great arts of life, perhaps the greatest, and it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go out into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, and joy increase. It's inevitable that peace increases. It's inevitable that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. And another Nanao Sakaki poem. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. And I'd like to close the uh, talk this evening with uh, two more poems. This is a poetry night, (laughs) partly. And one more Nanao poem. This is uh, really a tribute to him in a way and a tribute from him to our practice. And he calls it a love letter. Or called it a love letter. Within a circle of one meter, you sit, pray, and sing. Within a shelter ten meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field a hundred meters large, 
raise rice and goats. Within a valley a thousand meters large gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a for forest ten kilometers large play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. Mountainous country Shinano, a hundred kilometers large, where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle ten thousand kilometers large, go see the southern coral reef in summer, or the winter drifting ices in the sea of Oks. Within a circle ten thousand kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth. Within a circle one hundred thousand kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced-out yellow mustard blossoms, the moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle ten billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system, mandala. Within a circle ten thousand light-years large, the galaxy full-blooming in spring. Within a circle one billion light-years large, Andromeda is melting away into snowing cherry flowers. Now within a circle ten billion light-years large, all thoughts of time, space, are burnt away. There again you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. And ending this uh, talk this evening with a poem by Native American poet Joy Harjo. And she uh, calls this one Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self, to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you, and know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in knowing that we are made of all this, and breathe knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. And let's sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.